The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Many people doing terrible things and things against the core of that religion that you are going to shrug your shoulders and say, why is this permitted? Like I remember... When there was the bird flu in hysteria in the world, they had lots of bird flu cases even here in Thailand. And then the newspapers were proudly declaring how a whole cohort of Buddhist monks went to one of these plants where they had to kill 50,000 birds. They had to cull them because they were infected with the bird flu virus. And then they made some offerings and then the priests themselves got served with chicken. I couldn't believe it. Buddhist monks, they got served with chicken and they were, you know, participating in the meat industry, kind of justifying it. It's like, that's not what Buddha would have done. I'm 100% sure from everything I read about what Buddha said and done that Buddha wouldn't have stood for such a hypocrisy. And that's why I say in Kali Yuga, one of the things is that authentic spirituality is rare. And even religions, churches, and others, they are to a large extent false. Now, people in Christianity hear that a poor priest was asked in the middle of New York to be celibate. Of course, it's that difficult to be celibate in the middle of New York with all the media frenzy of today. And then he ended by having sex with some parishioner, or even better or worse, they, he ended by buggering some little boys in the choir. And then everybody loses faith because of that. No? This authentic religion, so many falsities, so many things appear that people feel discouraged in so many ways. <clears throat> the second thing on my list, which is not a complete list perhaps, is just what I thought about. Spiritual information is adulterated either through scarcity or inflation. For example, the Vedic priests allegedly had a vegetal remedy which was called Soma and this mysterious Soma allowed them to have higher states of consciousness and to extend the lifespan hundreds of years. That's lovely. Where is Soma? Did that plant disappear like the dodo? Where did it go? Who forgot the recipe? Who is the bastard who forgot the recipe of that? So we don't have it today. Where is the Soma? Of course, there are speculations like, what is his called? Wasson, I forgot the other name. A Swedish scholar claims that it was the fly agaric, this red poisonous mush mushroom that you take it and it makes you berserk and you foam at you. But everybody said it's bullshit, you know. Like you are not mixing up a psychedelic mushroom with the Soma of the Vedas which is declared to have totally different effects from the fly agaric. Now, this was the hippie culture in the 70s who came up with a lot of funny theories, you know, like Jesus was a mushroom or something like that. <coughs> so, the information is adulterated, either through scarcity, some of it simply disappeared, or some of it through inflation. Like some people pump it up. For example, the information about the chakras is very, very precious. 
Then some people come and say, no, there are eight chakras, there are nine chakras, there are 11 chakras, there are 14 and a half chakras. They are, you know, like, why inflated? Why this Vadistana hysteria, this new age thing, that seven chakras are too boring, and every 10 years you have to come up with something new, because else the new age subculture doesn't stay hot and thrilling enough. And then you build a copper stargate or something to make it even more exciting. No, all this is bullshit and everybody knows. But unfortunately, this inflation covers a lot of authentic information. Who said that the third chakra is yellow and the fourth chakra is green? Some bullshit author in the 60s or 70s who thought they were smart or maybe they took too much LSD and they thought they'd rediscovered America or something, you know. Unfortunately, it's not true. The third chakra is not yellow and there is no green in the heart chakra. That's completely ridiculous. Green never resonated and never resonates with the heart chakra. That's why this is, there is scarcity, like some things we have lost. And then even in yoga, we have asanas which say like there is an asana which is listed and it's called gopuchasana. Gomukasana means the cow head and gopuchasana means the cow tail. Did you ever hear about the gopuchasana? Have you ever seen it? I can tell you after 32 years of yoga, I have not seen ever a bit of it. Gopuchasana, if practiced for a long time, gives self-realization. That's a lovely asana to know. Where is it? so that somebody can practice it. It's lost. It exists only by the name. There is not a yogi in India or elsewhere. There is not a text which describes Gopuchasana. It's only mentioned that it does this. Lovely, then show it. We don't have it. So information is lost through scarcity, and information is lost through inflation when people start talking nonsense and inventing things, coming up with things. That's a sign of Kali Yuga, and uh, the ancient masters were very, very careful about these things. Another typical thing which defines this peculiar position is that spiritual support seems hard to get. And that is rare indeed that people get truly supported spiritually by somebody or by a community. Material support for spiritual practice is hard to get. In the old days, the yogis of India, just like the Buddhist monks of today in Thailand still, which is a glimpse of uh, Satya Yuga, you know, this is still a reminiscence of something very beautiful. They are supported spiritually. People make donations. They give them food for alms in the morning. So our brothers from the temple here, they don't have to work. They never have to work. They can meditate from morning till evening if they want. Most of you, in the low season, you go back home and you get yourself a couple of jobs to gather enough money so that you can spend six months, eight months, ten months, whatever it is, here to do your spiritual practice. Why aren't you sponsored for it? Why don't you have a rich supporter? Like somebody says, I see you do meditation every day. Here is 10,000 for you so that you can continue doing meditation for the next ten months. That's what would have happened in the old days. You would receive food, shelter. When Abhinava Gupta was invited to come to Kashmir, the king of Kashmir built him a house and gave him a sort of a dowry, a sort of a rent by which he was having 
So Abhinavagupta never had to bother about his daily bread or about if he had a roof all over his head so that a great wise, a great sage, he could focus on what was his dharma. He didn't need to go around saying, well, I don't have food. I have to stop myself thinking about the nine rasas and now I have to start thinking about how to put bread and butter on my table. He didn't have this problem. Glorious. That's not the deeper the Kali Yuga goes, the more this opportunity <coughs> disappears. And there are many collectivities in which people have to work materially, like monasteries where the monks have to do farming and other things, to sponsor themselves, to make themselves self-sufficient, although they are not supposed to spend their time plowing. But they do it anyway. And some of them do it so much. I've been through Mount Athos and other plates of retreat like this. And I found monks who all day long were doing gardening. And how many hours per day were they doing prayer? Zilch. None. They were going Sunday to the mass. But for the rest their daily life was made of farming and chores. What is the spiritual life then? You just work all day long to sustain your material body. And then you don't have time to do the other things. Another typical situation of the Kali Yuga is that in general the collective mind, the energy, is negative, full of skepticism, full of materialism, full of egoism, and that generates a very bad trend. Many, many monks and people in the last 2,000 years, they ran into secluded places, communities, monasteries, ashrams, places like this, because as soon as they would live out in the soap opera, people will intoxicate them. This person didn't give me the 2,500 baht which I ran. That person fucked my wife. That person did this. That person is like, no, then you are just poisoned all the time with this rubbish which goes around you, and you get a lot of toxicity in your mind, because you are getting a lot of negative things and which keep you preoccupied with these things. So, many practitioners have a problem with the collective mind, you know, how to insulate yourself even from the collective mind, given the fact that it is the way it is. In Kali Yuga also, there are many discouraging examples. Like there are many people who, you know, American preachers who pretend they talk for Jesus and they are flying private jets. And then the people discover that they embezzled most of the money and they lived a five-star luxury life. Not through their work really, but through donations which were not meant for their luxury, but which were meant for some karma yoga, for some divine work, for some charity. And they embezzled heavy duty. These kinds of things, they are discouraging. People say, yeah, but if, if they do like this, am I more stupid? And I'm just going to sit and sponsor and be charitable and be kind and be like a fool and be a naive, candid fool when everybody is doing shit like this. And then people are becoming competitive in a bad way and then they start going in the negative thing. So there are so many discouraging examples from priests buggering little boys to people embezzling religious money and so on. And then, uh, again, this discourages people to, from doing spiritual practice. Or people say, well, if they do it pro forma, 
then I am also going to do it pro forma. It seems that's the norm today. Everybody is more or less of a hypocrite. People don't even dare to be authentic anymore because it's like, ah, you are very naive that you can still believe in authenticity and things like that. <coughs> Another ugly thing of Kali Yuga is that there exists an aggressive attitude against spirituality going till martyrdom. Buddha was severely persecuted by some asshole king whose name the world cannot remember. I mean, we know it, but you probably don't know it. I don't remember it. I just remember I read about it, the whole story. Some stupid king who was persecuting Buddha sent people to poison elephants so that the elephants will get in agony and try to stomp Buddha to death and things like that. Buddha, Buddha, what did Buddha do to irk anybody? See, the very presence of Buddha, the very wisdom of Buddha was provoking the demons from the gut of some people to the extent where people wanted to kill the inoffensive, compassionate Buddha. At least about Jesus, you can say he was really looking for it because he had a big mouth and he didn't hold it back at all. He went on blazing at everybody around and blazing at the authority and blazing at the religion and of course he kind of asked for it. Although even that, if somebody would stand up and tell the truth, everybody should get ashamed and simply say yes. Like when Jesus said, you know, you want to stone this woman to death because you are listening to an antiquated stupid law. Okay, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And then he put them in such a state of consciousness that they were aware. They looked and then everybody realized, who am I to throw the first stone? You know, like, am I without sin? Then how do I dare to make myself into the judge of this woman when I have no moral right to be the judge of anybody, I have to first look at myself. I have to look at the, the beam in my eye, not at the straw in the eye of my neighbor. So, even, even like this, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the fact that people behaved as they behaved to Jesus, but at least Jesus was a real firebrand one and he was going strong on things. <coughs> Mukta, dear, since you are by the door, can you bring me some tissue? I'm having some running nose and no tissue. Thank you. So, there is generally a, a, an aggressive attitude against spirituality. I have seen it in so many ways. Not only Buddha, not only Jesus. Ramakrishna was treated really badly. Milarepa was poisoned by some jerk. You know, like people who lived 30, 40 years in a cave, and then somebody poisons their food. For what? How jealous, how envious, how mad do you have to be to poison somebody like Milarepa? And the list is endless. They tortured Francis of Assisi. They killed St. Catherine the Great. They persecuted St. Teresa of Avila. Like the list can continue endlessly. Since 2,000 years... Very, very seldom do we have a century and a place where a man like Abhinavagupta can live a peaceful, plentiful life 
in which he is given some appreciation for being the great sage that he is. For the rest, we see envy, animosity, and people are getting mad. There is a very illustrative documentary made by Bill Mahler, which is called uh, Rel, Rel, something. Religulous, like meeting from religious and ridiculous. And you can see that this man is demonized. Everybody who does a bit of spirituality, can this man even looks a little bit like the emperor from Star Wars, you know? He even has that, that grin on the face all the time. And, he's, and every time when he finds a person that has a religious faith, he goes completely apeshit. Like he cannot stand the fact that other people have faith. It drives him nuts that people believe in God. He finds a Jew converted to Christianity. <laughs> Sorry for this one. It was a long accumulation. <clears throat> and he asks this guy, how did you convert to religion? You know, like they are both American Jews. You know? And he says, how did you convert to religion? And this guy said, I had some religious phenomena. I had an epiphany. If this thing happened, this thing, it's a whole story. And he said, then to put the cherry on top of the cake, I just wanted to verify it. And I simply said, God, if you really exist out there and if my choice is right and everything, please make it rain right now. Like, there was absolutely no sign of rain as far as he knew, because otherwise he wouldn't have made such a request, because he would have thought, well, it's on the edge anyway. So he simply said, out of the blue, make it rain right now. And he said, I took out my hand through the window and it started raining on it instantaneously. And then he said, this was enough for me. At which this guy says, did you ever think it could have been a coincidence? Yeah, it could have been. But how much probable is it that it was a coincidence, such an incredible coincidence, compared to the other thing? So what I'm trying to say is, the demonic entities, they are acting in this way, those of us who come from communist countries, ex-communist countries, they know the background which was there. Like when the communists came, many people think that, oh, the communists was bad because they didn't give press freedom and because there was no market. That's bullshit. We People could live with that. The real thing which was diabolic into this is that somehow among all those economical doctrines, they managed to sneak very skillfully the fact that actually you should persecute religion under any form whatsoever. The amount of torture, abomination, like priests were put in prison and then they were forced under torture to serve mock masses and then to eat shit as communion instead of communion. They were obliged to torture each other to death under pain of death and torture onto themselves. And other abominations like this, which most of the world doesn't even know. And the targeted people were the people that had religious faith. Forget about proletarians and social equality and all that. That was something else. 
but there was something way, way darker and more painful. And this was mysterious. Like, what's your market economy or controlled economy suffering if some dude kneels five times per day and prays to God? What's your problem? Why can't that person be a loyal worker and even belong to your social regime? Why does it irk you that some people in their private life or in their small communities pray or they have beliefs? They did. This was done to hundreds of millions of people. Think about the Cultural Revolution in China and so many other things which are a reality. That's why there exists a very aggressive attitude which goes till martyrdom. It is incredible that the tree of life of this planet produces rare blossoms from time to time. This is how I would define enlightened beings. Rare blossomings of consciousness in the middle of a world generally of ignorance and egoism. And then when Ramakrishna appears, instead of saying, okay, we are happy you showed up, you know, we put you in charge, you torture them, you persecute them, you lock them, and then you kill them. This is, it, this is really, really like shooting yourself in the foot. You know, we speak that we are a big organism and we are all one. Then why do we kill our fruits? Why do we kill our blooms? You know, why do we kill the best of the best? And we isolate them, we persecute them. Just because Jesus is coming and saying, hey, stop drinking booze. Then everybody who is a bit of an alcoholic has to choose between stopping boozing or giving the finger to Jesus. And giving the finger to Jesus is way easier than to stop being an alcoholic. So therefore you give the finger to Jesus because he is a bastard who prevents you from unfolding your vice. This is what is happening. That religiousness, a real dharmic lifestyle, would be a lifestyle with a lot of self-imposed restrictions. It will be a lifestyle with some self-discipline, such as non-violence, no theft, truthfulness, and all that. Brahmacharya. People, rather than doing brahmacharya, they prefer to be non-religious. I've seen so many men and women who had strong sexual desires, and they went out of religion. It's happening in all the Mediterranean areas. So many young Spaniards, Italians, Greeks, give the finger to their traditional Christian religion because hanky-panky is not on the list of the church. And then those people have to choose between their hot Mediterranean blood or being celibate or being very disciplined sexually, as the church asks most of the time vainly these days. And that's why here we are having a fight between people's instinctual desires, not only sexual, but of all the kinds, and the sort of a spiritual awareness, self-discipline, where you can live a life of spirituality. And the demonic, selfish, materialistic, and unconscious tendencies are so strong that people prefer to shun the religion because it's not convenient to their agenda. It's it's contradicting some of their impulses. (coughs) The fact that we are in a tantric school and here we can turn the tables on the thing with sex, that's just an exceptional occurrence 
and even that is pushing the buttons of a lot of people in another way. No, there are people who would run away from religion because they don't want to be celibate or they don't want to be two years engaged before they get married and all that social discipline which existed in the traditional bourgeois society for hundreds and thousands of years. But then when it comes to Tantra, they can't do that as well. Like nothing is good enough for those people because somehow they try to slalom into darkness. Whatever choice they do, it's actually the demonic choice, the anti-yama and niyama choice, always choosing the dark side of things, which for an informed spiritual person is a clear sign of that person being dominated by materialistic, dark, egoistic, demonic tendencies. So, unfortunately, there is a lot of martyrdom and spiritual people have not been treated very well in 95% of the cases in the last, at least in the last 2,000 years and more. (coughs) On the other hand, on the plus side, we can say immediately that spiritual information comes easier. I, as a spiritual teacher, can see very clearly that people today get spiritual information from books, teachers, audios, videos, and others, amazingly. Like to be able to pack up the information today, authentic things from Zen Buddhism, authentic visualizations from Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, Tantric practices from India, Hatha Yoga, Kundalini, Dervish dance, uh, some Christian Hesychast prayer, some Kabbalistic uh, techniques. Nobody would have been able to do this 500 years ago. Maybe a person on the face of the earth would have been able to gather some of what I just said. Today there are people who know all this and more. Information definitely comes easier. In the old days, Naropa served his master Tilopa for 12 years and Tilopa subjected him to humiliation and very ugly things and then gave him the spiritual enlightenment quickly. And so people were subjected to tests. There is a movie which since long years I plan to include in our collection. It's one of the documentaries which still eludes me (laughs) to include it in our collection of spiritual movies. It's a documentary which I've seen many, many years ago. It had been broadcasted in Hungarian television. It was originally a Japanese documentary. And it was dubbed over in Romanian language. So it was very, very poor quality. And I can't find it because I don't know its original name. Maybe some of you have seen it and you'll know what I'm talking about. And in this documentary, it was the story of a Buddhist Zen monk from Japan a young man who went away from home to do meditation into a monastery. And the first thing is when he got to the door of that monastery and he asked, I would like to be a novice, a monk, in your monastery. And the first answer had been inevitably, sorry, we don't take novices. In this monastery, we don't take new people. He kept asking because he knew he was Japanese and he knew the culture. And he kept asking. And they kept him in the sun, and they kept him in the rain, and they kept him in the night, and they kept him in the day. 
and next day in the morning somebody just creaked the door open and put a bowl of soup on the ground right in front of the gate and then they slammed the gate back and every time once a day some guy came out and told him we don't take novices this monastery never takes novices and so on which is bullshit because then how did they have new monks in the monastery when the old ones died no so he was discouraged like this for five days or a week he stayed hungry stood in front of the door of the monastery being told we can't take you you can't be accepted here and in the seventh day they just opened the door and he stepped right in like people are subjected and this is just to be accepted inside the monastery they didn't teach him Udiana Banda or something like this you know they didn't teach him any secret technology or this just right away <clears throat> then for ye- then for years and years he was the one who had to do all the chores in the monastery he had to go to bed last and he had to wake up first because he had to clean he had for all the older monks he was like their servant he was the novice and he was doing all the dirty jobs in the monastery cooking food doing dishes everything and he did it and he was sleeping three four hours per night until he started feeling that he's losing it that he's going crazy and then because he was too proud to turn back home because his father he pledged to his father that he will go and do zen then he decided to kill himself by not sleeping at all or by sleeping maximum one hour per night and the funny thing that after he did this for a few months he reached the state of samadhi and he became enlightened so I didn't tell you the story because of that I just told you the story to show that even for a simple thing like Zen Buddhism is not famous for delivering great esoteric secrets it's a pretty straightforward and simple technology in Tantra you find a lot of esoteric techniques in Zen Buddhism the techniques have been published in books long long time ago and still just to be accepted in that field of energy in that bubble in that environment he had to put lots and lots of effort going to the point where he desired to suicide himself so what I'm saying here is people today they get spiritual information much easier to compensate for all those toxic things which are undeniable the upside of it is that you get access to pearls to pure gold because Shambhala simply knows there are very few people who would like to do spirituality and those people have some very bitter obstacles in front of them it's very unfair so at least we can support them by this so there is a sort of compensation from the higher forces that there is more information and support in that way spiritual achievements come easier when I read in one of the satsangs the life of merit intellect that Tibetan Lama from four Lamas of Dolpo many people got the creeps you know got the EBGBs you know they said I'll never be able to do this this guy has been a machine he's done three years three years three years of non-stop spiritual practice like we are doing two hours per day and we feel we do some heroism and most many people don't even do those two hours per day it was like when am I going to reach and you don't even know who merit intellect was like merit intellect is not Milarepa or Tsongkhapa merit intellect is a pretty much anonymous Lama in the history of Tibet and he's done practice tons and tons so people feel discouraged 
If it takes 30 years of meditation to reach a state of, and that 30 years means 10 hours per day, this means I don't know how many tens of thousands of hours of meditation. I will not be able to do that in 16 lifetimes if I put them together. So I'm getting discouraged. It's like I will never really make it. I'm dabbling into spirituality. For me, it's just a dabbling into it because really going serious and really doing the big thing, then you have to be like Milarepa. You have to be like Ramakrishna. Funny. Guess what? History and experience doesn't prove that. History and experience proves that people who are making spirituality in very adverse conditions, sometimes those adverse conditions being communist prison, and sometimes those adverse conditions being living in the middle of New York and being bombarded with shit from all sides, those people get spiritual accomplishments much easier, much faster. It's like somebody is praying for them on the other side, and they get a lot of merit. Like you make one step and somebody from Shambhala does nine steps for you on your account. And you don't even know why, but things seem to work. You start feeling the chakras. You start seeing the colors of the aura. You start seeing the na- hearing the nadas. You start being able to project energy through your hands and limbs, parts of the body. And you wonder, how am I getting so good with so little practice? That's the explanation given traditionally. And also, there is this statement, illustrated by one of the statements of Jesus, when he educates his twelve apostles, and then when he sends them on that mission, he tells them something which sounds very ego-inflating. He tells them, you are the salt of the earth. Every hair on your head is accounted for by God and something to that effect. Like He tells them you are more important than the emperor of Rome on the face of this earth. Like Shambhala, he doesn't of course use the word Shambhala, but he would say Shambhala and God has an eye constantly on you and a lot of things. You maybe don't see it, don't feel it because you are not aware of those, but... Don't worry, at least believe in it, trust in it. That means Jesus tells them you are having an increased value due to your scarcity. There are so few people who do real spirituality on earth that the angels, the gods, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, Shambhala and God himself have to take care of them because they are so scarce. And when one of them passes away or is incapacitated, there will be ripples which will have effects on the whole planet. So this being said, we are confronted, I just listed here, the peculiar position in which you are like to define the terms of engagement. Where are we into? That is why I wrote here a few more ideas. It is agreed by many spiritual persons that in Kali Yuga, with divine permission, which sounds very provocative for some people, with divine permission, the demonic forces are allowed to prevail. Even Jesus himself, when he is about to be judged, condemned, mocked, whatever, tortured, and then crucified, 
he is challenged directly by some of them who says, hey, you know, why are you the son of God or what and so on. And he tells him clearly, you wouldn't have power over me if we would be in Satya Yuga. If we'd be in Satya Yuga, you'd be shining my shoes. But because we are in Kali Yuga, he says, you wouldn't have power over me if that power wouldn't have been given to you from on high. Like exceptionally, God made it look like you are the upper hand and I am the lower hand here, while in reality I am the Christ and you are a bug. But because it's Kali Yuga, it has been allowed to apparently be so, so that people can make choices, even wrong choices. It should look like 50-50. Some people will vote for Jesus and some people will say, nah, no, no way this guy was the thing. And therefore, Jesus himself admits, and in some place in the Bible, he actually calls the devil, Satan, he calls him the prince of this world. He doesn't say king of this world, because king of this world is either he or the father in heaven. But prince of this world. What's a prince? A prince is a sort of vicar. It's a temporary replacement. It's a governor, it's a sort of stand-in kind of replacement which temporary is given power. When the king comes, the prince has to step aside. But Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. So, at the same time, Jesus, who declares himself in a conflict with this situation... He tells to his apostles, he says to them at some point, There, for I have vanquished the world. Like you can defeat this demonic thing on a limited scale. For you, you cannot change the world. Because the world is in Kali Yuga and winter has to continue. But you can warm up your house. And then in your house it can be nice and cozy. Therefore, he tells them, There, for I have vanquished the world. Buddha has also vanquished the world under the illustration of Mara, the powerful demon who came to tempt him with everything that samsara had to offer. And Buddha said no. And thus he vanquished the world. Jesus vanquished the world. Milarepa vanquished the world. Rumi vanquished the world. Every, that's why in Jainism, Mahavira is called the Jina. The Jain religion, the religion of the Jinas. Jina means victor. Victor over what? What victory did Mahavira win? Over himself and metaphorically over the world. The world had no more Maya power over Mahavira. Mahavira defeated the world. Trampled on the world. Not because the world is wrong. That's what some people want to make it. It was a temporary gesture to make a choice. Like it's just for the sake of making the clear point. Then the world continued. And actually Buddha, although he trampled over the world, he was very compassionate towards the world and everybody in it. Because he said, these are my brothers and sisters who are on the same path with me, only they are not so advanced on the path as I am. They are behind me somewhere. They will come where I came. 
Jesus can say, I have vanquished the world, but he is full of love and compassion. And he says, love your enemy. Pray for those who do harm to you. And all that. So, <clears throat> I just want to, to, um, to make you understand an idea which is very confusing. And I wrote it here under the form of a longer sentence. So, as much as we would like to favor soothing New Age sayings, like, oh, but we are all one, and all this Vadistanistic superficial thing, we must take this kind of thing with a pinch of salt. Because we may be part of a large planetary system of organism, like we are all one, Mother Gaia and all that. But it matters also if the organism is healthy. Because in an ill organism you find cancer tumors. And if you are in the middle of a cancer tumor, you can say we are all one. Then I am also a cancer tumor. You know, it's like, it's not as simple as that, saying, oh, it's all a big organism. Yeah, but where am I in that organism? In my organism, there is a lump of shit as well somewhere in my large intestine. No, it doesn't. There are many things in an organism. Realize. And that's why it matters if the organism is healthy. And it matters which part we play in that organism. For example, there are immune system cells in your organism that attack and destroy all the cells infested by viruses. Hey, there are cells in your body which kill other cells in your body. And guess what? In the ecosystem of this planet, there are lions which take the old antelopes and catch them and eat them. And it's very cruel and ugly to see a big cat eating an animal. It's a very ferocious scene, which Discovery Channel and Animal Planet don't really show in detail. They cut it when it comes to that actual scene. <coughs> Sorry for the assortment of tonight. So, <coughs> as much as you want to be walking on rose petals, that, oh, we are all one, and it's all so very nice, and so on, Actually, some of us have to do some killing. Exactly like the immune cells in the body have to do some killing. Because the organism is not all healthy all the time. That's why there is a bit of a war into spirituality. Because there are parts which are gone wrong. There are tumors. There are ill cells. And in Kali Yuga, there is a lot of tumor and a lot of cancer in the organism of this planet. And just by sympathizing with it and fraternizing with it, you don't solve the problem. Jesus never fraternized with the people he conceived. He was very loving and forgiving, but he never fraternized. He told them, it's very clear, you change your ways 100% or else I'm going to rave at you. No, like he was not compromising too much. He would have been loving, but it didn't mean... That you have to say, come, you are my brothers, let me give you a hug. Yes, Pharisees or zealots or whatever you are, ultimately we are all brothers. I'm a Jew, you are Jews. Ah, let's give each other a big brotherly hug and smoke a big joint together to celebrate this one. It didn't go that way, did it? That's why <coughs> I wrote here, the spiritual seeker is sometimes like a brilliant genius child in a class of retarded kids, does he have to play dumb and stay at the level of the others 
for a variety of reasons, like not avoiding conflict and so on? Or should he stand up and stand out of the crowd with the risk of being martyrized, with the risk of provoking the others? The spiritual person is a person who stands out. So the spiritual seeker is a different person and in an, in an environment which is often hostile. Please learn to live with this. You have read many fairy tales of spirituality, but you are in Kali Yuga, and when we look at the last 3,000 years of history, that's what we see. Yes, in Kashmir, they did not crucify Abhinavagupta, because history says that Kashmirians in the 10th century were very sattvic, very spiritual, very detached, very imbibed with spiritual teachings and aspiration people, probably lots of advanced souls incarnated in the bodies of Kashmir. So you had a hundred thousand Kashmirians and all of them were bodhisattvas. Then of course, when a Buddha comes among a hundred thousand bodhisattvas, they treat him well and with respect. Yes, some great lamas were treated well in Tibet. But Tibet was the roof of the world and one third to one half of the population lived in monasteries, was doing actual spiritual practice, religious life. And therefore, maybe in Tibet we had lots of high spirits incarnated and therefore among those high spirits, then a bodhisattva or a Buddha would get a higher recognition. But these are very limited examples they happened for a period of time in a limited geographical area. And as we come close to the 21st century, less and less. The more you go back in time, the more you find golden ages. So that is why here we are having a state of conflict. And that's why from this I'm going to go now into the conclusion of what I said. I just want to give you food for thoughts because I cannot draw a final conclusion for you personally. But I simply said here there are different solutions and attitudes resulting from this situation. I spent the last hour defining the situation from Kali Yuga. Some of you might disagree with me and say, Swami, we think you are totally astray and so on. Some of you might say, we think we, you exaggerate and you just see the empty part of the glass. and all. It's up to you to... Do your own homework and study those things. But from those, there result several attitudes. The first attitude which was used in spirituality, in Kali Yuga, is secrecy. Kind of a dead poet society. Like you can do exceptional things in your school, but only five people know about it. That is materialized in being parts of secret societies, esoteric environments, elite little circles, inner circles. Of course, this choice, if you choose to be part of that, this is not so much a mass efficiency, like for example, Jesus or Buddha, who had a mass efficiency. They chose not to speak to a chosen few, but they chose to speak to everybody. So then if you are that, you don't have so much mass e efficiency. Maybe except telepathically, that your presence in a society gives, brings something subconsciously, energetically, telepathically, mentally. But definitely we can say that this choice makes life 
a bit more comfortable. Like if you are a secret spiritualist, nobody really can poke you in the eye for that because they don't really know. So this goes as far as hiding completely one's spiritual concerns and practice, which you see very much in some Chinese-style spirituality, some guy being some great meditator, Zen master, martial artist or something, and just going around and pretending he's a beggar or a drunk or something, some guy being a great spiritual master and actually pretending that he is a businessman that he is just a householder, a man with land and family and this and that. And actually, when you dig a bit deeper, you discover that that man was a great spiritual practitioner. (coughs) I remember I was always impressed by a story from the ninja lore of Japan, where a ninja, a famous ninja, passed away, and then they discovered that this ninja had three different names, three different families, three different personalities, three different jobs in three different cities. And no one knew of it. This man was living a triple life. In one city he was a merchant, in one city he was a shoemaker, you know, and ultimately he was a great ninja master. This kind of secretive thing, like live underground completely, Don't let anybody know that you are a tantric master, a yogi, a healer, a clairvoyant, or something. Some people can't do this. They hate it. Some people say, come on, you know, it's like, be yourself. And some people love this kind of hiding, secrecy. And others, the Rosicrucians in the old medieval times in Europe and so on. It happens even in yoga and tantra. So it's all over, and this involves a certain kind of smartness. Like you have to learn this, and then you are acting on a very underground level and with very few people. The second attitude, the second possible attitude, if you don't choose the secret type, to be a practitioner who stays secret, to stay out of trouble, to stay out of the limelight, The other one is humbleness. Endure with extreme patience. Expect persecution, martyrdom, misunderstanding. Realize that in a certain way you work for the whole planet, for the whole organism. And this is mostly the path of the heart and the path of the Christ. Like, take it. Carry your cross. It's what Jesus says. Whoever wants to follow me should take their cross and follow in my footsteps. So, some people choose the humbleness and the persecution. I'm going to do whatever I do, and it it shall be according to God. The third type of attitude, like what do you do to deal with Kali Yuga, is choosing isolation. Like hermetic lifestyle, detachment, and inaction. You just go and separate from the world. Not many people will come. Sometimes even hermits had to, to suffer. I read about so many hermits martyrized in Sinai, in Egypt, in Palestine's desert, especially around the 7th century when the Islam was expanding. 
and they encounter these people. And sometimes people living alone in the desert, suddenly there comes a posse by and sees them and they are not of the same religion and simply executes them, simply kills them on the spot because that was the spirit of the time. That was So even those, you cannot isolate yourself that perfectly, but there have been many men and women who chose to go in far, far away. Go like Robinson Crusoe on some far away island in the Pacific Ocean and there do your spiritual practice and let the world run its course. This is based on detachment and it's not a karma yoga. This is based on inaction. The fourth attitude, compare or confronting Kali Yuga, is to try to be a crusader. We have seen spiritualists fighting for forgotten ideals openly. This is typically the myth or the archetype illustrated by Cervantes in Don Quixote. Don Quixote is a man who resents the decline of chivalry. And he says, where are the real men? Where are the knights? Where are the men noble at heart? Okay, I shall be the only lost knight in this century. And of course, he is most of the time hilarious and out of his time, but he is an idealist. He is a dreamer who dreams of chivalry, who dreams of lost ideals. So, some people like Mahatma Gandhi, where is the Ahimsa of India? India, oh India, what have you become? And then Mahatma Gandhi for a number of years managed to crusade hard and with some brilliant successes for non-violence. Fighting for forgotten ideals openly, it's like trying to grow roses in the winter. If you expect that you are going to create God's kingdom on earth now, today, maybe you get a brilliant strike of luck and kind of Satya Yuga comes overnight and kind of you happen to be there at the right time, at the right place. Most often people who try to do this, like Mahatma Gandhi in the 1940s and 30s, eventually they... I said, it's a partial success that may require self-sacrifice. Like, such crusaders are brilliant, they are lovely, and most of them, they die in the line of duty by self-sacrifice or by others, (coughs) depending on their level. I always remember I say this uh, situation, and it has other meanings as well, because there is a guy in India who has been fighting for the bad fate of the lepers. He was a doctor, a medical doctor. Unfortunately, he was not spiritual. And he fought for the leper, leprosy thing. And eventually, he created a colony for the lepers where they are treated humanely because they are treated with horror and disgust by all the rest of the society. In India, but not only. And then, ten years later, he got the leprosy. Well, he could have said like, Father Molokai, or like Father Damien of Molokai in Hawaii, you know, if this is what God gave me, I shall follow my course with this. No, he was a proud man, he was not a Jesus, he was not really a Christ, he shot himself. So he was unable to carry that big of a cross, but he tried, he tried to... (laughs) 
he tried to have compassion for the lepers. Funny thing is that today we know that most of the leprosy is not even contagious. It was a superstition of the medieval times and it can be treated with simple antibiotica. So <coughs> that's how karma goes. That's how you know, people are confused about something and then they go there. So the fourth attitude was be a crusader. If you have fire up your ass and you have the balls for that, be a crusader. There are people who don't want to lie low. There are people who have a big mouth and they prefer to shine for three years like a comet and then die with a big bang. You know, There are people who want to live their lives like that. At least know what you are doing. The fifth attitude is quite peculiar in Kali Yuga. Thank you very much. The fifth attitude, I have encountered a few yogis who lived into this one. And it's peculiar and slippery. I sympathize with it in many ways. It's not necessarily my choice. And I define it like if Kali Yuga is an adverse environment, it's a hostile environment, then one way of behaving in a hostile environment either is to be like El Sid, the crusader who dies in character. As I said before, that's the crusader. Or you can be an outlaw or a guerrilla fighter. That's the Robin Hood of spirituality. Like when the king is not there and Prince John has taken over the shit, then the right thing to do is to become outlaw. Like if your country is ruled by George W. Bush and he takes 10% of your income to send soldiers to Afghanistan, then the right thing is to try to do tax evasion, not to pay, because you can't change George W. Bush, you can't shoot him, you can't change the policy of the government, and then you simply say, my 10% will not go into making weapons to kill people. I refuse to do that. Therefore, starting tomorrow, I'm outlaw. I'm against the system. So, this is like fighting for forgotten ideals, realizing their impossibility on a large scale. When 99.9% of the society doesn't believe in what you believe, you are as outlandish out there as the Taliban's and as the fundamentalists. Let's make it clear. When you are a real committed yogi, you are a sort of fundamentalist. Only that you are not a Christian fundamentalist or an Islamic fundamentalist. But the fact that you stand for Dharma, the fact that you stand for Yama and Niyama, the fact that you stand for aspiration and divine things, makes you a weirdo, makes you into a freak. 99.9% out of the people out there, they want to have their Sunday barbecues and get drunk. They don't care about what you want. Therefore, it's a peculiar situation. So, it's fighting for forgotten ideals, but realizing their impossibility on a large scale. It's like, I can grow roses in my glass house in the winter. Yes, in a glass house I can. So on a limited scale, I can grow roses or tulips even in the winter. And I can grow roses in other people's glass houses. But it's not everywhere. Not in the open fields. They will not. Therefore, this is a path of action and taking responsibility. It involves going against the system, going against the stream. 
It's exactly like in the matrix, when the guy teaches him about the matrix, and he says, were you looking at the red woman? And he says, look again, pam. And then there is an agent with a gun pointing, and he says, stop. If you remember that scene from the matrix, I'm quoting it, so I'm stirring up your memory about it. And he says, as long as people are still hooked to the matrix, not like us who are visitors, intruders, as long as people are hooked in the matrix, they are serving the matrix. They are serving the prince of this world, who is the devil, in case you didn't remember. Therefore, people actually act against you. There was a mob who came and killed Francis of Assisi or tortured somebody. Or It was a mob of nice Catholic Italian Christians who tortured and killed Christian practitioners in Italy. It was not Muslims coming to kill Christians in Italy. It was Catholics killing Catholics. That's why I say that this, if you have this position, it involves going against the stream and in many unexpected ways. Now think about somebody who is the doctor of a bad character. If you are the doctor of Mao Zedong, should you kill Mao Zedong because he is a bastard? Or should you observe your medical vow? Like, if you are the doctor of Hitler, and if you give Hitler poison, won't the Second World War stop faster and many millions of people's lives be spared? But do you have the right to do that? Would you do that? So, or, or a very recent example with Osho Rajneesh himself. Osho Rajneesh, till the end of his life, when he was humiliated and forced, and many people say that psychologically that was one of the things which humiliated him most, and short after he died, Osho Rajneesh refused constantly to pay taxes. He said that the Buddhas are tax-exempt. And both in India and in America, they constantly frauded the tax system because they said, what does the tax system give to us spiritual people? The tax system is building a lot of material facilities which our ancestors 10 centuries ago didn't have, and they still could meditate, and they still could be spiritual. So therefore, it's not of necessity, and you are just uh, taking my face with the fact that you built some highway, and meanwhile, the society is going to the dogs, and the morality, and the ethics, and the purity, and everything is going to the dogs. Therefore, Osho was one of these. He played a little. He loved to play Robin Hood, and he simply said, no, it's okay not to pay taxes. It's okay to break the laws. The Islamic religion even says it's on a large scale while it doesn't apply it so much. The Islamic religion says if the laws of man contradict the laws of God, like what's written in the Quran, it is perfectly legitimate to break the laws of man because they are made by the demons. They don't matter. Only the laws of God matter. And if they contradict the laws of man, screw the laws of man. And of course, the laws of man today, in most countries of the world, they are not according to the Bible and the Quran and the Buddhist canon. They are laws made by secular people, because ever since the French Revolution, the Freemasonry and the secret societies tried to cut religion from the state. That was one of the things which is in every democratic constitution that religion should be sterilized, kept out of the state, so to have no power. 
over justice or anything like this. And therefore, <coughs> it is a very, very seductive path through its independent character. It is a sort of extreme karma yoga. No, like if you are Robin Hood, you take the responsibility to say, this man, this woman have too much money. They are exploiters, sucking the blood of the peasants. So I catch them in the forest. I take their money at gunpoint and I redistribute it back to the poor. You are playing God. You are playing supreme justice. Because you are making the law and sometimes it ends because it may be elegant to think about Robin Hood, but realize that sometimes people fought back and Robin Hood had to kill them. Robin Hood had blood-stained hands. He's a very handsome guy. We all sympathize with Robin Hood, especially when they make Robin Hood uh, be interpreted by Errol Flynn and Kevin Costner and some, or Russell Crowe, you know, they are all very sexy men and they all gain our appreciation. But actually the real Robin Hood is a guy who is a thug. He is a highway robber who does his own law and somehow he thinks he's doing right. And it so happens that the story seems to have a happy end because the king sides with him in the end. But it is like I saw once a caricature in a sex magazine. Yes, Swami has been looking through sex magazines. You can put that on your blogs. Plenty. <coughs> That's, I'm that kind of Swami. So um, in, a, in a caricature, Robin Hood is depicted having sex with a woman on a table. It's a quickie, obviously. So the woman is on the table with the legs on his shoulders and Robin Hood is boning her hard. And little John is just bumping through the door and catches them in the act and says, and uh, Sir Robin, how much of this will go to the poor? No, like, come on, there are some advantages to the life of being an outlaw, right? And it's all not that perfect and perfectionistic and clean that Robin Hood was serving the poor and so on. If he was a saint, maybe. But if he was a man with some arrogance of his own and with some ego of his own, it was a mixture. There were mixed things there. No, who is perfect? And that's why this is a very seductive path. Like many adventurers would like to be spiritual outlaws. You know, like screw the society. We live in the rotten Kali Yuga and we can do things like if you could break into a Rothschild bank and get a million dollars or a gazillion dollars, wouldn't you? Like, why would you have to be grateful to any Rothschild or Rockefeller? Or do they do you any favor or something? These people are notorious thieves who have ripped the world three times over until now and raped whatever they could in this world. Like, should you have any mercy for Rockefeller and this? If you are a Robin Hood, screw Rockefeller, you know? If you can know how to hack banks online, hack all the Rockefeller banks online and go anarchist, you know, go against them. WikiLeaks and all that, you know, like let's down the system, you know, close Wall Street or whatever it's called, you know, like let's have uh, anarchy and revolt against the system. It's not started now, it started with the hippies in the 60s. Some very intelligent people were in the hippie movement. And they wanted, they wanted to close down the banks. They wanted to close down the stock exchange. They wanted to close down everything related with money and speculation and this. Which, of course, it proved utopian for most of them eventually. So, 
this this option which is very colorful it can also be very slippery for the ego because people feel that they are chosen that they are special it's difficult to be robin hood and not to feel that you are special robin hood is the one man in england who is allowed to have highway robbery and eventually will be clapped on the shoulder by the king and forgiven and congratulated no it it feels like you are very special you are very chosen <clears throat> unfortunately this inflates the ego and in my life i mentioned osho and others i am not having anything special against osho but i say i met quite a few people suffering from this ego inflation coming from this option like some people chose not to be crusaders not to be secret living in secrecy not to have humbleness and carry their cross some people not to go in isolation and be hermits but they chose to kind of sneak to be guerrilla fighters in the jungle of the kali yuga and uh, unfortunately i've seen some of these people stumbling sometimes now and then in spirituality you read about people in christianity buddhism yoga gurus that tumble off their pedestal as an article in the yoga journal said and then you read some facts and you kind of say boy this guy or this girl has gone really a bit far you know it's like i can understand that in kali yuga some spiritual people feel like pushing the envelope but really how far can you push the envelope <clears throat> like one of the leaders of the hari krishna movement or cult or whatever you want to call it they discovered that hari krishna was making a part of its funds by selling weapons they were trafficking in weapons an ultra religious hindu cult was actually having dirty money blood money from selling machine guns to some african countries or god knows you know it didn't sound like was that the work of god this is exactly what is happening and many people criticize it with the famous opus dei in the catholic countries which today is so criticized you saw it in the da vinci code and so on actually it is criticized by their enemies the da vinci code is written by an eminent freemason and the freemasons gave a low blow to the catholic church which they keep doing since 300 years with each other it's an intestine war between them because the catholic church about 50 years ago said what are we being strangulated by freemasonry and uh, uh, rockefeller and these kinds of guys and we can't do anything and we lose adherence and money aren't we smart enough to do our business our money to have our karma yogis that sponsor us and support us and so a french uh, spanish guy the founder of the opus dei simply said let all the spaniards and all the italians all the french everybody that has faith in god let's create a sort of financial active business side of the catholic church and help the pope and help the priests you know and uh, even if it means uh, cooking some books and so on let's do it the other guys are cooking the books big time we can fight with the weapons of the enemy some people would agree would say well opus dei is a sort of robin hood of the catholic church only they are being exposed and kind of uh, ridiculed in public and so on, like look you know but the other guys are doing us bad or worse actually 
So very few people realize that there's a war happening in there in very many environments. And that's why when you choose this, I always tell to people, if anybody wants to be the outlaw type, you have to pay extreme attention to yama and niyama, to the high principles, to detachment, to genuine spirituality. I have seen many people going astray because of this. Like I've seen people playing this game a little bit too hard and too much. I remember one of the spiritual people that I knew in my life. 30 years ago when I knew that man, if somebody would have said, you are an asshole, he couldn't have cared less. He would have smiled and said, well, you don't know me. I know myself. I know, I, I know who I am. I am who I am. Okay, you can have your opinion about me. And 30 years later, he did some shitty decisions. And then somebody called his attention about, look, you've done shit right here. And he said, if I change my opinion, what will the other people think about me? That I am not confident, that I don't know what I'm doing. Like I will lose my image. This man who started as a pure spiritualist, 30 years later, he was caring about his image. That's why I say, like Ramakrishna didn't care about his image. People thought that Ramakrishna was crazy when he was 17 and when he was 50. And Ramakrishna couldn't care less if people thought he was crazy. He was just the same. So that's why this is a slippery path. It's very attractive and actually many yogis today, that's why you hear some wild stories. That there are some people who go like the militias of North America. You know, fuck the government, we just buy guns and fortify ourselves because it's so sure that some economical meltdown or third world or both are going to come and we're just going to be the survivors in our houses in the forest and all that. So it's a sort of, no, the world is crazy, the world is going in the wrong direction and I want to follow my own advice. I want to follow my own path. And there are other attitudes of the spirit, much smaller, with this I finished on the sixth point here, there are spiritual practitioners in Kali Yuga who try to be smart, like they try to play the game of the world and not that's a very tantric concept. There are spiritual practitioners who are very charismatic, they try to conquer the world in a charismatic way, try to think a little bit about the Dalai Lama for example, no, it's He's coming from a very severe spiritual environment. And when you, will, uh, you know, when you will see what these people talk among themselves, you'd be stunned. You know, I remember the story with some people following some Indian guru. And then somebody overheard, was, was told, this guru spoke in Hindi to some of his followers. And he used the word for all the Farangs who were visiting him a word which in Hindi would translate as dogs. He called all the visitors who were bringing him good money, dogs. Like he didn't give a rat's ass on the Farangs. You know, they are good for sponsoring. He didn't trust that any one of them will any day become a great master or something like this. They were cannon fodder. So that's why I say... It's a little bit similar. Many people, for example, think that, oh, the Tibetans are so nice. But you have never been in the intimate world of the Tibetans. 
to see really what they talk about and how they evaluate all the farangs who come and how much you know they yes and you say well they don't have they have loving kindness and compassion you can have loving kindness and compassion and if you are a T cell in the moment when there is a virus infected cell you kill it and that's part of the compassion so people understand compassion very svadistanistically very new age-ish, very politically correct, while compassion can mean a lot of things. Now, in all the prophecies of Christians, Tibetans, and others, the ultimate compassion is that the king of the world will come out of Shambhala and exterminate all the sinners, so there will be left 100,000 righteous people on earth. Like, you know, that's compassion, mass murder. It's compassion, like go back to the kingdom of heaven and come next time to a better choice. No? That's compassion. Drukpa Kunle is presented by a Tibetan king with his sick baby, hemophiliac or something. And Druk, Drukpa Kunle doesn't say, I'm going to heal your baby. Drukpa Kunle says, give me your baby, I'm going to drown it, I'm going to give you a blessing, and you and the queen are going to make a healthy spiritual baby, which will be a blessing for your country. Because if you let this one become the next king, this one is going to become a demon and is going to destroy this country. That's compassion. To kill a baby sometimes is compassion. For Drukpa Kunle, it's not my choice. This is in the life of an eminent Bhutanese yogi called, called the Divine Madman, precisely because sometimes his actions were so far from the norm. That's why <coughs> we, the people in spirituality... We sometimes are very different. We are very much against the grain in so many ways. And sometimes we can play stupid. And sometimes we can conform. And sometimes we can carry patiently our cross. And sometimes we can go underground and lay low. And sometimes we can play Robin Hood games. And sometimes we can become righteous and go crusaders for the truth. And sometimes we can run away from the world and live 40 years without seeing anybody like Mary or like Mary of Egypt or like <coughs> Milarepa or others. And sometimes we play charming and charismatic and sometimes we can be really smart and do our things. No, like for example, Yogananda played smart. What did Yogananda do? Yogananda seduced a multimillionaire from California. And then suddenly, this multimillionaire bought him land which today is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and the Self Realization Fellowship blossomed. It was enough for Yogananda to get devoted one very rich man. Was he smart? He was a Capricorn. He was damn smart, Yogananda. Therefore, no, sometimes Ramakrishna never thought, but even Ramakrishna, actually, he was recommending to his disciples to find a rich sponsor to be sponsored because he himself was sponsored by a rich woman from a low caste, which all the Orthodox Brahmins, uh, they would, were spurning her and they were turning their nose in disgust because this woman was from a low caste. And Ramakrishna simply went into her temple, became priest into her temple, he couldn't care less that she was from a low caste. And from this standpoint, he, he was smart. Therefore, he often said, a yogi has to be good, but he doesn't need to be stupid. To be good is not the same thing with being stupid. That's why 
there are so many attitudes concerning the problems of Kali Yuga, which spiritual people do. I hope this was food for thoughts and that you will meditate for a while. First of all, you want to choose, not tonight, not soon, whenever the time is ripe for you, you will want to choose if you are a spiritual fighter, if you are a spiritual person. Maybe it's too much for you. Maybe there are other things which really attract you much in this lifetime, right now. So why not do what you feel you are called to do? Because when you do things without enthusiasm, you do them badly. And if you have enthusiasm for being in God's army, either secretly or humbly or uh, as a crusader or as a Robin Hood or whatever, then you'll find out which is the path for you. Like Rajneesh, for example, said it clearly because many people said, oh, Osho sometimes didn't behave really like a spiritual person. Really? As a spiritual person according to whose judgment? According to whose criteria? Like Osho Rajneesh was threatened with death and then he hired bodyguards. He said, I don't want to die like Mahatma Gandhi. If Mahatma Gandhi wanted to die that way, good for him. That's not my dharma. I don't choose to be the, the sacrificial lamb. And he pushed the envelope in his typical Sagittarian style. And he said, try to think, if they would put a cross on my shoulder, so many bruises and so much pain. He said, no, I can't carry a cross. If, if ever they will give me a cross, it will be carried by one of my Rolls Royces. That was his choice. He said it clearly. I'm not a martyr. I don't want to play martyr in this life. I want to play smart. I want to play Robin Hood. I want to play this. I want to play that. Everybody chooses their game. Remember, this is how also Gurdjieff was. <coughs> Gurdjieff was completely merciless when it came to stupidity. He simply said stupid people deserve to be exploited. Like, no compassion? No, he said, no compassion. If you are stupid, it's just a bad karma, and you have to pay for that. It means you deserve to be born stupid, and that's it. He was not having any Christian feelings about stupidity, and he was a maverick, very provocative, very tricky person. And some people hated Gurdjieff for not conforming to the norm. Like, here you have a great spiritual master that is drinking vodka and smoking cigars. We can't have that. No? <clears throat> and he said, that's precisely why I do it. So that the people that have a lot of fear and insecurity, they should go away quickly, quickly. Only the people who are intelligent enough to see through my game can come and be with me. And that, that will be good enough for me. Therefore, you see different spiritual teachers choose different attitudes and different spiritual practitioners and I hope I gave you an outline. And remember, it's very much because there is a contradiction, a severe fundamental contradiction between the goals of this world and the goals of the majority of people and the goals of the spiritual people in Kali Yuga. Theoretically, yes, we are all one part of Mother Gaia and we are all rowing in this big boat. Problem is that in Kali Yuga, some people are rowing that way, some people are rowing that way. 
and it gets nowhere eventually. It's just a big running in circles like chicken with their throat cut off. So because of this, spiritual people have a very peculiar situation in Kali Yuga. And think about it, sleep on it, meditate on it, ask more about it in the questions and answers sessions, and slowly, slowly get to some point where you decide if you want to be trying this game in this life, and if you want to try this game in this life, which kind of game you want, which part of this game would you like to play. Like when you will die, what should be your epitaph? What should be written on your tombstone? Here lies John Doe, who was a wonderful crusader for nonviolence and like Mahatma Gandhi's. Fine, you want that, do that, prepare for the bullet, for the inevitable bullet, which comes and do it, do it with a serene heart. And if you feel you can't take that bullet, then don't play that game, don't be silly. Choose your game carefully so that it fits with your temperament, so that it fits with your astrological gifts, so that it fits with your dharma. Try to find out where that goes. With this we have finished this. Thank you for the person who gave the inspiration for this satsang tonight to bring up this issue of how to deal, how to be a spiritual practitioner in Kali Yuga. What's the destiny? What's the fate? What to expect? Where does it go? Like anybody who wants to be a spiritual practitioner, if you do spirituality for 30 years, of course you are going to become, even willy-nilly, a proeminent spiritual practitioner. Which one of the six or seven typologies of spiritual practitioner are you going to be? Don't let it just happen. Everything has to be done consciously. We are conscious beings and we have to put awareness in what we do. Enough of that. With this we have finished for tonight. Namaste and thank you for joining tonight. And I will meet you in further meetings. With this we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.